You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back. We're here for part two of our discussion about Brant, and joining us, as he did last time, is Dr. Mark Lindbergh, retired professor from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Mark, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. When we left off the previous episode, I think we had just concluded with a discussion about individual heterogeneity uh, and how fascinating that was, You know, even not just within waterfowl, but all a lot of different species of wildlife. We had touched a little bit on um, the, uh, I guess, some of the differences between Pacific Brant and Atlantic Brant and some of their migration tendencies. And I think that's what stimulated this conversation about individual heterogeneity, differences in how individual birds will will approach certain aspects of breeding or migration. Um, I think it was also at that time that we, when we took that break, we said we were going to and to go back and study up a little bit on Atlantic Brant, because in the previous episode, much of our discussion was on Pacific Brant, that being where you've studied most of your career. And uh, so, yeah, I guess that's where I wanted to start out is I, I know you did have a, some, some time to look back at some information on Atlantic Brant. Is there anything that we need to clean up or supplement the previous episode regarding Atlantic Brant uh, from, from last time? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to do so. I, I had forgotten about their migration patterns, and I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, the Pacific we covered in quite a bit of detail, and I, as I told you, I've been very, was always very impressed with that uh, nonstop migration they make from uh, Cold Bay, um, Alaska Peninsula, most of them, all the way to Baja, California, and Mexico, almost 3,000 miles. And for some reason, I, I, wasn't remembering the Atlantic Brant migration patterns, and I had in my mind geographically that it wasn't as far. But just recapping that now, in the fall, uh, they leave their main breeding areas, which is south of Baffin Island in the area known as the Fox Basin um, in the Canadian, eastern Canadian Arctic. And um, they, they fly to James Bay at the southern tip of Hudson Bay, where they spend... Um, upwards of almost two months uh, staging. But the interesting part to me of reviewing that again is that that initial movement when they're at depleted body condition in the late summer, the lowest weight is a thousand miles. So unlike Pacific brand that aren't moving nearly as far to the far to their fall staging area, those 
Atlantic Brent have to make a fairly substantial movement to James Bay to stage and build reserves for the next thousand miles or so that they'll migrate to the uh, Atlantic coast, again, focused on New Jersey and um, New York is where most of them uh, spend the winter. But then in the fall, they have less opportunity to trickle back north, or I'm sorry, in the spring, they have less opportunity to trickle back north and do Pacific Brandt. And again, they have to make a fairly substantial jump from their final spring staging areas on Atlantic coast to James Bay, which they return to again, about a thousand miles spending again, about a month there and then jumping up to largely the Fox basin area of the Eastern Canadian Arctic. So, um, I hadn't thought about that much until you asked the question and, and, um, it would be fascinating to have a comparison of the physiological, um, strategies that they employ for those um, quite different migration demands that they have. And if you're going to do one nonstop 3,000 mile flight, you probably would use a different strategy than two 1,000 mile legs. And um, that would be interesting to see that comparison, which I don't think has been done. So anything else to add there, Mark? I don't think so, other than maybe just a note, um, you know, abandoning a strategy that's so risky is well risky right um you know these birds leave um an area and are flying thousands of miles in anticipation of finding suitable habitat for them to survive and it actually um, goes to some of the vulnerabilities of migratory birds because changes that are occurring in areas where they're not currently at could have huge effects on them, um, positive and negative for that matter. If we start thinking about snow geese, um, from a positive standpoint, but imagine, you know, there's some catastrophic, uh, oil spill or some type of contamination that's occurring on staging or wintering areas. And you leave an area anticipating you're going to find good stuff and you don't. And I think that, um, I just want to mention that because, Migratory birds and migratory traditions require um, an extra level of vigilance as we manage them and their habitats to think about and and putting in a plug in for you guys. I think you think with that 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 viewpoint that boy, there's some birds coming from a long way off that are going to rely on the habitats that we're we're uh, conserving, and um, you know we got to do a good job of that because if they show up and it's not well done, uh, they're in trouble. Mark, the other thing that will probably add to the discussion from uh, from part one of this of this series is relates to the diet of Atlantic Brant. We talked about how they are beginning to shift due to some of the uh, historical changes and decline of their eelgrass habitats. They've successfully adapted and changed their diet to include some some upland grasses from golf courses or other uh, other type of of turfy areas. The other thing that they that they will consume and has been found in a, a fair percentage of the diet of of 
Atlantic brant that have been examined are things such as widgeon grass. They do do still eat eelgrass where they can find it, but they also supplement that with widgeon grass. And then a fair amount of algae, I forget exactly what kind of algae it is, uh, but that's become a pretty common part of their diet on the Atlantic coast. So uh, showing some flexibility there over the years and what they're able to consume, but uh, still, still almost exclusively a vegetarian species. And so just wanted to make sure we add that, added that in our discussion. The other thing that I'll note right now is that as I've heard you talk here a few times already in this episode, there's a your your son's parakeet, I think, in the background is chiming in to help out with the conversation. So if people hear the bird chirping in the background, just know that's what that is. I, I do find that it's it responds whenever you start talking there, Mark, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm surprised you're picking it up. He's uh, back in the corner, frightened because <laughs> I tried to catch him, but unsuccessfully. Uh, it's so, all good. Uh, it adds, it kind of adds to the ambience. <laughs> I just, uh, one question I had when you were adding about the diet that you might know better than me is, um, so these birds moving on to golf courses, I haven't thought about this for a, a long time, but is there more and more regulation about application of pesticides and insecticides to golf courses or fertilizers that are being considered given that you know the reliance increased reliance on that food i'm really not sure I, I don't have a read on that at all that would be a conversation for someone that i guess is more familiar with uh, the the habits and tendencies of of brant that may have thought about that uh, in in terms of their consumption of uh, pesticides herbicides that would have been applied to golf courses and i i don't even know how common foraging on golf courses per se are. I just, I know I've seen that referenced uh, along with foraging in other sort of turfy, grassy areas. So don't have a good read on that. It's a good question though. Yeah, something I don't think about much from Alaska. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Mark, let's move along to sort of the breeding ecology of this species. And I think here there'll be some similarities between the Atlantic brant, Pacific brant. So just kind of walk us through that. I, I think we've I don't remember if we talked about it on the previous episode about lifelong pair bonds for this species and uh, anything else regarding mating system. And then we can just kind of move into the nesting system for the, or, or nesting season for the birds. Yeah. Like all geese, they're monogamous and but the, the, there's exceptions to that and they divorce and they have extramarital affairs and, um, and uh, yeah, there's surprising data from some species where we've done genetics about how many males are actually involved genetically in the in the production of a clutch. Um, you see a pair of emperor geese is the work I'm thinking of, and you think, wow, they're a really strong pair, and surely it's the only male contributing. But in genetics, show two or three males might have contributed to that clutch. So. Um, yes, they are uh, long-term monogamous, though, and um, one aspect of that, or sort of side aspect of it, is that waterfowl are exceptions among birds. There's a few other groups, but um, they exhibit what's called female bias phylopatry, and that the female returns to the site that she chooses, which is typically the site she was born at or uh, previously bred at and the male is just along for the ride so um you kind of delta colony you'll get males from all over the place um that are they're paired with females that are predominantly from 
those breeding colonies. Mark, we had a conversation with Dr. Javon Bank recently where we did a species profile on, on greater white-fronted geese. And in that conversation, we began to talk about the different strategies that waterfowl employ with regard to uh, where they get their nutrients that they need for egg production and nesting. We started talking a bit about the uh, the capital versus income breeders, and and that was in reference to kind of where white-fronted geese fall onto that on that gradient. What do we know about uh, about Brant in terms of where they are in on that gradient? Uh, do they bring with them all of the nutrients that they need to uh, to cr- to create to produce a clutch of eggs and incubate? Or do they supplement that with some foraging once they get uh, to the nesting grounds? Talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, by and large, they bring what they need with them. Um, And what you define as the nesting ground gets a little bit um, in the semantics. But, you know, they are staging in areas close to the terrestrial habitats they'll use and, and taking on nutrients there. So within 50 miles possibly of where they'll ultimately make landfall. But the reason for that is there's a real premium on nesting as early as you can. There's good data showing that um, nest initiation date is uh, highly uh, correlated with ultimate, uh, well, nest success, but then production and growth of your goslings too, because those goslings have to, the timing of hatch has to be such those goslings have access to um, high quality forage. And those birds that nest earlier tend to have goslings that have uh, access to highest quality forage. Boy, that was a mouthful, but (laughs) hopefully you got the the point. So um, we've shown a real strong relationship between timing of nesting and ultimate reproductive success. And that's that's a pattern that's similar across all waterfowl species of which I'm aware of. The earlier they get there, the the more if we're talking about prairie nesting ducks even, the earlier they get there, the more opportunities they have to re-nest. And then there's also some reasons why the earlier they get there, in some cases have been documented that ducklings survive at higher rates because um, related to kind of typical deterioration of wetland conditions as you get farther into summer. So there's it, there's always, and we've always this urge to for waterfowl to get there as quick as possible and initiate their nesting as quick as possible. We spoke about that uh, in the context of, uh, of kind of what's happening with waterfowl as they're down here on the wintering grounds and preparing to get back north in the spring. There's this urge to get there as quick as possible. The same thing applies to Brant. That's what you were talking about there, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, there is a bit of a, a caveat to that in that in the really uh, detailed data sets we have, it seems like the earliest nesting birds, um, that's not, you don't want to be first. Um, it seems like those birds are subject to hybridation. You can imagine there's these communities of predators, Arctic foxes in the case of Brant that might have um, been waiting for Brant to return and um, low on food. And so some of those earliest nesters don't do quite as well and or they might be subject to storms or weather patterns that aren't affecting their nest success. And some of the most refined data sets, including that on Pacific Brant, show that the earliest, earliest nesting birds, those first couple of days, don't do quite as well as those that delay a couple of days and then start nesting. 
Oh, that's interesting. What about nest site selection? What are are brant colonial nesters? Where do they fall within that? Uh, within kind of that view of things, uh, talk about their nest site and and their nesting tendencies. Yeah, so they are classified as colonial nesting, and um, they, uh, with few exceptions, they tend to follow that. There are some dispersed nesting birds on islands, um, but that's that's not common, and that's low numbers. When I worked as a graduate student on uh, Pacific Brant, they were at a kind of a peak at the colony I worked at, and uh, nearest neighbor distances, the closest distance between nests was down to a meter, three feet roughly, and um, there was one, we have these long-term nest plots we search that they're uh, 50 meter radius circles that um, this one in particular was in the highest density nesting area. And half of that plot area was in a lake, so only half of it was available for nesting. And that plot had 95 nests on it at its peak. Oh, my goodness. And you can imagine uh, um, what that sounds like, what that looks like. Um, the uh, challenge for me was we would go in and web tag the goslings hatching from those nests. Some of you are familiar with those tags we put in the webbing of the, the uh, goslings as they're coming out of the egg. And that helps us identify them later when we catch them uh, uh, during banding. And um, the trick was to get in that colony and web tag goslings without them leaving the nest early. Because sometimes if you disturb them, they'll, they'll leave the nest. So you got 95 nests in a 50-meter radius circle. And you're trying to systematically work around that to... Uh, to mark them and it was it was quite the challenge i basically could never stand up so i crawled nest to nest and the hatches highly synchronized most of those nests would have hatched in about a week-long period and uh yeah it was fascinating so 90 times well, let's round up so i can do easy math but um 90 times uh 100 times a clutch of four or five you're looking at four to five hundred goslings emerging from eggs, hatching from eggs in a one-week period. And the, the goal was to mark them all, you know. So basically for a week, I crawled around on my hands and knees in a colony um, putting web tags on goslings. And the crawling around on your knees was to minimize the disturbance? Yeah, so, you know, if the female, the hatching of those goslings is fairly synchronized, but sometimes you'll run into a nest where there's three that have hatched and one that is... Um, still pipping and trying to get out of the egg. And if she's disturbed too much, she might just take off with three of those and leave mm. that pipping egg behind. So you need to try to do everything you can to minimize that. And we actually had an observation tower near that that particular part of the colony. So I would work for a couple hours, web tag, and then I'd crawl up in that tower and make myself disappear take a rest, um, uh, eat some food. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm reminiscing here back <laughs> in the day <laughs> that plot currently because of the declines in nest density on that particular colony only has about 10 or 15 nests now. No so the kidding. current techs have it pretty easy. The colony has shifted, um, its distribution, but it's declined by more than half in terms of number of birds too. So they don't have quite that intensive high density area, but boy, that was a real tangent relative to your question. Their colonial nesting and density sometimes can be as high as a, a meter apart. That's fine. I, I like tangents. They 
kind of the personal stories and the visuals that you can paint for for us, I think are pretty cool. We'll move on to sort of the nest itself and the clutch of eggs. Uh, if people haven't gathered already, they do nest on the ground. Uh, any anything unique about their their nest site uh, that would differentiate them from any other Arctic nesting goose that nested in the tundra up there, nest on the ground? Uh, nothing too unique, other than their willingness to nest so early, um, and, and you know, put eggs on the ground about one per day for four or five days, even in slightly flooded conditions, um, they'll put them in water. Wow. And, um, and they're pretty much just a scrape at that point, nothing more, no down. Um, those eggs are quite viable, even at, they can't freeze, but, um, even at relatively cold temperatures, um, cause the female doesn't start incubating them until about day two or three with any constancy. So they're just sitting out there on the ground, um, somewhat exposed, and they slowly add nest material and then down, and it becomes quite a nice insulated um, nest by the time they're done. Uh, here's a little aside to this, though. Um, one of the areas they're nesting now is subject to occasional flood tides, and um, and sometimes those tides are high enough um, coastal areas that they'll destroy nests, but we've had several nests that have simply been lifted by the tide and floated some distance, maybe five meters or so, uh, 10 feet or so, and, um, and then just redeposited and the female just continues incubating them and they hatch. So okay. we've had several instances of that where we come back, we have markers at the nest site so we can find them again. And when we come back and there's no nest there. There's marker, but no nest. And we got to do a little detective work to figure out where the nest is now. And that's, that's been yeah, that's really interesting. And that kind of brings up another point about some of the risk to these uh, to uh, to nest. How often do nests uh, get flooded out? Is the, those flood tides are they a a common source of kind of nest abandonment or nest failure? And are those becoming those incidents, uh, instances becoming or incidents becoming more frequent or more severe as we see things change in the Arctic? Yes. Um, fortunately, it seems like the frequency um, from bird nesting standpoint is higher. The increased frequency is higher in the fall than in the spring um, and, and summer for that matter. But yeah, as you may know, we had a one of the more severe um, flood tides hit the Yukon Delta region this fall, um, and um, those are getting more frequent. But that one was incredibly severe, moving water as far as 20 miles inland. And mind you, that's not much of an elevational gradient, but um, it probably put five, six feet of water over the bank at the colony proper. The birds had already left when it hit. Um, but if that had been during nesting, that would have been a complete loss. Um, you know, we've lost, I don't know, uh, five to 10% of the nest at Tatakok to flood tides in a season at a high end. It's not that common in the, in, during nesting to get those kind of flood tides. And clutch size average of about four to five, um, something in that range, right? Yep, four to five eggs is pretty typical. Uh, no re-nesting, no opportunity for that. Same as with all other nesting, uh, Arctic nesting geese. 
uh, we don't never documented re-nesting, but we've documented a couple cases of what we call continuation clutches, where the bird loses part of its clutch and then continues that clutch in another uh, at another site. Okay. Or in some cases, d- dumps it in what we call dump nest, um, where you might have twenty or thirty eggs <laughs> in a single nest that a female you know, is obviously not just her own, but other birds are dumping their eggs in. And then the incubation period for Brant, where does it fall? 24 days, 25 days. Um, like most waterfowl, they don't start incubating until um, they've laid an egg or two. Um, and then the real constancy of, of warming the eggs um, doesn't start until later in the clutch. Um, and that's another tangent that's fascinating, but... Um, how is it that eggs are that are incubated a different amount of time? You know, in a nine-egg mallard clutch, say, there might be five to six days difference in incubation time, but they all hatch on the same day. So, as, as precocial young, but that's a maybe not a tangent you want to go down. <laughs> that's a topic for another episode for sure. Yeah. Okay, so female-only incubation, uh, yet the male stays nearby the nest, uh, provides some vigilance. Anything else? Uh, did I get that right? Yeah, that's true. Um, females only incubate, although it's it's fascinating. So, so we have marked individuals, and we know their gender. Um, a third, uh, maybe a little bit more of the colony uh, has markers on their legs, so we know them individually. And, and you can't easily tell their gender just from appearance, so we've uh we've sexed and aged them when we marked them so we know that and one of the surprises occasionally is that they're very individual in terms of their tenacity to the nest and as you approach sometimes you'll see females slipping off way in advance and other ones you have to literally lift off the nest to to see their eggs gently but we have the occasional one where there's a bird sitting on the nest as we approach, but it seems a little odd. And then when we get there, we realize it's the male that is more protective than the female. He's not he's not incubating, but he'll hover over the nest and you get there and you could tell it's a male because he doesn't have a brood patch. He hasn't removed feathers from his belly to allow him to have skin to egg contact and effectively incubate. But um, you'll have the occasional male that do that. And um, there's one notable male that um, would occasionally land on people's heads as they were visiting the nest. The female would move off. And we have a, a famous, infamous photo of Jim Sedinger with a Brant sitting on his head um, while he inspected the nest. And no one was harmed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really tempted to ask you, and I guess I will by saying this, if there's any uh, documented relationship between that male aggression and, uh, and, and success of, of the nest. Boy, that was a conversation of many uh, nights um, in the weather ports of our camp. Um, the, uh, the quote came about, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. And, and there's quite a bit of bickering that goes on in, in terms of establishing a nest site. And, and the male has a very prominent role in that. And we wondered who those males were that got the optimal sites. And optimal being in the middle of the colony, sheltered from, buffered from predation, and maybe a high elevation site that doesn't uh, flood as easily. And, and we don't know the answer, but it was a fun conversation to have. Um, 
at nights at, in camp when we were cooking dinner or something. Yeah, I appreciate these stories and the, the firsthand perspective that you can bring to this. It's a, It gives a level of detail that that I can't whenever we're just doing ordinary kind of high-level uh, discussion of these species profiles. So uh, I hope our listeners find some value in that as well, kind of getting them there and seeing some of the really exciting and, and unique things and just really impressive aspects of these animals that we, that we care so much about. Mark, I think we're going to take our break right now, and then we'll come back, and I think we're at about the point where the... Uh, where the brant, where the goslings are going to hatch, and we'll talk about some of their some of their diet. And I know in the previous episode we discussed this. We, I think we hinted at some of what's happening there with regard to declining duckling survival or uh, gosling survival and, and interaction with foraging on their uh, on the preferred food. And so there's a real neat, uh, maybe concerning feedback. Uh, happening there we'll talk about that as well and then get into some of the conservation and harvest as we as we try to wrap this up sound good sounds good you and your dog are a team fuel is best in the field and in life with purina pro plan sport Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Mark Lindbergh talking about Brant. And Mark, before we get into get back into our discussion on kind of what happens next for the goslings, I want to take a little little bit of a detour and talk about sort of what's happening next in your in your life. You're retired from the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and and I had seen some of what you were doing by following you on social media, and you're getting into photography in your. Uh, in your retirement and not just any photography it's like backwoods wildlife uh, photography and maybe not necessarily backwoods it's backcountry given that you live in Alaska and you're incredibly skilled and you're it's like you you're getting better every day uh, so talk with us about that where does that interest come from and then why do you think there's it's sort of a natural sort of next step for you in your career and appreciation for uh, for wildlife and the habitats and, and our need to conserve them. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity to talk about that. It, photography is something I was interested in at a very young age, and um, I had some pretty good equipment when I was a graduate student working on Pacific Black Brant, and we were actually banning Brant, and a flood tide came in, and it uh, filled the waterproof bag I had my camera carefully placed in because it was open. And, uh, you know, I was a poor student at the time. It was a Pentax K1000 and a couple lenses. Um, I, I, I still have that camera. It's a little rusty now. Um, but I never replaced it. And um, uh, not until uh, about 2016, I bought a camera off my uh uh, brother-in-law who's a professional photographer and um and by about 2018 my interest really started to get crazy my wife is a little worried um that i'm buying too much stuff but um but it, it really took off in 2018 and i must admit my primary motivation was selfish 
um, with getting back into photography. I, I, um, I was looking for an excuse to be outside. I had a, a running career prior to that. I was a fairly committed runner and started marathoning and age and some injuries sidelined me on that as happens with many. And I was just looking for the next thing and photography um, filled that. And it got me outside a bunch and got me into places that, um, that um, I probably wouldn't go unless I was doing that. And um, it, it's been great. I really enjoyed it from that selfish standpoint, but as I got into it more and more and more, I realized that i bring this eye of um that not everyone has to it and that is a 35 year career as a biologist and i could see things i see things differently than someone who's just doing it from a photography standpoint and that's that's the new challenge if you will where i'm trying to go with it is to try to enjoy it for the selfish reasons i talked about but then try to find ways to deliver that conservation message too, we struggle with um, with words sometimes. And I mean, that trite quote of a photo's worth a thousand words, I think is very true though. And um, so I'm exploring that. It's, it's, um, it's a work in progress for sure. And as you said, it's, I feel like every day I'm learning something about composition or light or uh, messaging and, and, um, but it's coming along and it's, it's, it's really fun and um, I'm making a little bit of money at it, but I don't really have that as my primary motivation. And um, I'm anxious to see where it takes me in the next couple of years. Well, having you as part of our group uh, in, in Cole Bay, you, know, you didn't take your gun and you didn't rent a gun. You took your camera. And so 90, probably 80 to 90% of, of the time you were photographing while the rest of us were hunting. And the, the value that, the images that you captured that week are are worth more than any price that I could I could put on it, and they will will provide us with memories for a lifetime because they're just fantastic photos capturing all the moments, capturing our hunting, capturing the animals, capturing the animals in their habitats, and doing the things that they do, their behaviors. And I think that's what you're talking about. You have this eye built on your your 30 plus years in this in this field that allows you to pick up things that ordinary folks might not, and you can capture those in the photos. If people wanted to see more of your your photography what are some of the places where they could find that i know you have a couple of social media uh, accounts what where could they find that yeah i have two instagram accounts that are probably my most consistent outlets i just do general photography at, at mark Lindbergh ak uh, that's um, an instagram site and then i've started a site called hunting science one word on Instagram as well. And that's, that's, that's an experiment. I'm trying to see if I could use photography to, to deliver messages. And, um, I have less of that motivation with the Mark Lindbergh AK site. That is just enjoy the, the photos mostly, but, um, I'm trying, I actually just posted something there this morning from our trip that, um, seems to be getting positive feedback. And it was, uh, a photo you might recall is the photo of um, our hunting partners in a layout blind in Cold Bay that they just look like a, a small, well, pimple. <laughs> I don't know what else to call them with a huge mountain behind them and talking about hunting in Alaska and how it brings you perspective. You don't, it, it brings you appropriate perspective of how insignificant you can be in this world. And I think every bear counter we had made us feel 
that um, as well. So, yeah, I'm trying there, and it's it's again, it's been fun. The other thing I dabble in is sports photography, mostly for my kids, but it's um people won't be as interested in that uh, as much. But I've specialized in caribou too. That's been one of my focal species, and and sheep as well because I still want to be able to get in the mountains for a little while longer. Um, so that's been fun. I do want to add that, yes, I didn't bring a shotgun to Cold Bay, but that you you kind of presented that in a, a more glorious way than it was glamorous way. Is I'm not very disciplined. If given the choice still between a gun and a camera, I'll choose a gun. So I left it behind knowing that, um, I'm I'm that way, but I am getting better at it because, as you know, cameras have there's no bag limits, there's no season lens on um, photography, so it's um sometimes I don't even have a choice. But given a choice, I'm still uh, still would prefer a gun in in most cases. Yeah, well, for sure, I appreciate that, and and thank you for sharing the a, a little bit of the insight on on what you're doing in your retirement, and I encourage you to keep it up. Well, thanks, Mike. When we when we took the break, we had gotten to the point of the the eggs are going to hatch, and so that put some goslings on the uh, on the ground. And talk with us a little bit about that. What do the goslings eat? The male and female are going to be providing that biparental care because of these long term perennially monogamous pair bonds. Uh, but what are the goslings eating? And and then talk to us about the thing that's begun to emerge and that that's uh, sort of a topic of exciting research right now. There's a simple part to this story and then a more complicated part. So the goslings hatch, they actually have a yolk sac that'll allow them to survive for a day or two, but they fairly quickly move on to uh, their preferred sites for foraging, which in the coastal area can be quite long distances. We're, we're kind of intrigued by how they move and we anticipate or expect that they use um, uh, tidal movements to be able to move upwards of 20 miles um, eventually, uh, maybe even a little further. Um, But they're trying to forage on new growth sedge by and large, and uh, its most digestible form is just a small or a low growth form that the goslings could pick at. We call them grazing lawns, and they look like putting greens um, was probably the best analogy. And those lawns are maintained by grazing from adult geese and if it's not grazed again a good analogy is your hedges if it's not trimmed those those sedges will grow to a higher growth form that's less digestible and and um, usable by small goslings as you can imagine and one of the complicated parts of this story is that it appears well not it appears it doesn't appear it's um Brant numbers declining in some of these colonies and that feedback and that maintenance of those grazing lawns um, is not being sustained. And it appears that goslings have less and less desirable forage areas, particularly on the Yukon Delta, um, because numbers of adults have declined and there isn't as much grazing going on before they hatch. And as a result, there's not as much forage there. Reasons for the decline are really debated, but um, in areas like comparable on the north slope of Alaska and Arctic coastal plain, where numbers of brand are increasing, um, those grazing lawns appear to be maintained much better. And goslings are fledging from northern part of Alaska um, much heavier 
than are those from the Yukon Delta um, because they have better forage during brood rearing. And, and it's not apparent how the if those trends are going to continue or not. And one of the driving questions on the Yukon Delta right now for continued research is can Brandt and maybe other species revert those larger growth forms of those sedges back to the desirable growth forms. And there's a lot of changes going on that um, we don't understand those dynamics very well yet. And this isn't a tangent, but just for an example, when I was leading that project as a student in the early 1990s, God, that just seems like a long time ago. Um, it was. Used, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. I used to use the phrase um, from Jimmy Buffett's song. Um, he went to Paris, you know, 20 more years slip away. And that doesn't apply anymore because now it's 30 years. And so I need a different song. Anyways, when I was leading that project on the Tatakoke River Brant colony, it was sort of a treat to find the nesting cackling goose. They were very uncommon and they were distributed largely at the southern end of the colony. And now that colony is pretty much interspersed with them and they're about 50% uh, cacklers and 50% brant nesting there, roughly. And um, maybe those cacklers, which also graze on some of those same plants, will help maintain those lawns. Yeah, it's it certainly is an illustration, another illustration of how nature is complex. It's not linear. There are a lot of interacting factors that are controlling what is good or not good for waterfowl and all sorts of other critters that are in the natural world. Uh, and it's uh, that's why sometimes when people ask us a question like what's going on with this, we don't necessarily have the right answer right now. We can identify certain parts of what we think are going on is contributing to it, but it takes it takes some time. It takes some creative thought on how to on what to study and how to study it. And this is a perfect example. And thinking about grazing intensity by geese on on Arctic landscapes and how that affects the nutritional quality of the of the grasses that grow up in response to that level of grazing is not dissimilar from thinking about grazing rates or stocking rates and grazing intensity for cattle production, right? There's an optimal rate, uh, optimal stocking rate and intensity of grazing to, to maintain you know, optimal nutrition quality in those grasses. It's exactly the same way of thinking about it, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And the other aspect that we don't, we haven't done a very good job of understanding is how these communities of birds and mammals, for that matter, interact in these environments to affect those habitats and their welfare. I'm very excited. I have a master's student who's uh, working on a project comparing nest success, waterfowl generally, and some non-waterfowl species as well at a colony site and trying to understand the community dynamics that exist there. Um, you know, one criticism I definitely make of the Yukon Delta work, and I think it applies elsewhere, is that we've been focused on single species studies. And I get it in some ways. That's reasonable to get your arm around a single species, especially if you're doing graduate research. But as a result, we have limited understanding of species interactions and community ecology. And I think, I think that's a, a frontier we need to continue to work in. So, Mark, we'll move on now, and let's talk about how long it takes the goslings to fledge. What are we looking at there? Yeah, so on the Yukon Delta, uh, well, goslings everywhere take about 45 to 50 days to fledge. Just to give you a rough idea what that might look like, on the Yukon Delta, that hatch hatching occurs about mid-June. 
of interest to a lot of people is in about mid-July, we capture the goslings and their adults um, and their parents, and we round them up in nets because they're all flightless at that point. The goslings have not reached um, the stage of fledging yet, and the adults are molting their wing feathers, so the entire family is flightless and allows us to capture them. So at about 30 days, roughly, we capture them, place bands on them, and take measurements. And then again, about another 20 days, um, they'll fledge. So sometime in August, for Yukon Delta brand goslings, they're um, they're obtaining flight. So Mark, I think that pretty much completes the the annual cycle for the birds now that we've got the young on the wing. And so I guess the next step will be to uh, to move on to harvest. And we've talked a little about harvest rates on the previous episode, but not a whole lot about total harvest and things of that nature, because this is a time in their annual cycle when the birds start migrating to their fall staging areas and where they start encountering hunters. Uh, but any before we do that, anything that we have overlooked uh, of note on, the, on their breeding ecology? I don't believe so. No, I think we've pretty much covered it. And I think we've done a good job covering that that fall migration as well and the significance of those staging areas. So let's do move on and then talk about harvest. Uh, there's a there, there's at least two different types of harvest. There's a subsistence harvest, and then there's also the the sport harvest. What do we know about uh, about those different you know types of harvest? Uh, maybe if you wanted to, what do we know about harvest rate and then total harvest? Yeah, so I think people probably can relate to total harvest more than a rate because the rate requires you to know how many individuals were actually in the population, and that's disputed. So, roughly speaking, uh, harvest a total harvest sport harvest is about five thousand brand, and that's uh, between Alaska and Mexico by and large, with some some harvest occurring in the um, Pacific coast as well between those two points, but not nearly as much. Those are the two main areas. Um, Subsistence harvest is really a wild card um, and one that could be of concern, but current estimates of subsistence harvest are between 10 and 30,000 brand, (laughs) Pacific brand. Um, I should qualify it as Pacific brand. So another way of saying that is we don't know what subsistence harvest is and you know a threefold difference in harvest in any given year which could be as much as a six times the harvest of sport harvest is something we need to learn more about and um, we just don't have a good way of surveying that it's um it's it's not well described and there isn't a tradition of reporting information on harvest by um, subsistence users that's just not part of the culture so that's a big black box in some ways in terms of that harvest. We do know, um, and this incorporates both um, harvest sport and subsistence harvest, we do know that survival adults has been relatively stable at around 80 to 85% annually over the last couple decades, slight decline maybe, um, and that annual survival of first-year birds or juveniles has declined fairly um, substantially during that time. That may or may not be related to harvest and likely um, isn't the predominant contributing factor. And uh, we think the reduced habitat conditions on both the breeding and wintering areas are a bigger contributor to gosling, reduced gosling survival than it is harvest. Um, but that gives you a rough idea of what we're, we're looking at for harvest. Again, harvest rates appear to have gone up in recent decades from about 1% to 4%. But again, 
that relates to the total population size of Pacific brand, I'm quoting here, and that number's fairly disputed now. Uh, survey techniques have changed quite a bit over the last decade, notably um, these winter surveys have been eliminated. And as we've already talked about, Brandt are shifting their winter distribution. So that makes it even more difficult for Pacifics. And that number is debated right now. Between 150 to 200,000 is what you'll typically hear. Um, there are some new uh, photographic surveys, video-based surveys going on. Um, they were going on while we were cold bay. Yeah, I and, remember uh, that. And those that are doing them have high hopes, but um, we'll see. We still don't know if that that's going to play out. So um, it's a little hard to relate harvest rates and even, for that matter, total harvest to the effects on total population size, which is a little bit difficult to know. Atlantic Brant are about 150,000 as well. By the way, I don't know as much about harvest over, over there, though. You know, Mark, I was actually looking at that as you were talking. Um, uh, Harvest of Atlantic Brant from 1999 to 2008 averaged to 26,000 uh, birds, which that's a substantial, substantially greater number than uh, of harvest than for Pacific Brant based on the numbers that we have, which that, that kind of surprised me. About 30% of that occurred in New Jersey, 30% in New York, uh, 20% in Virginia, and then the, the remaining 7% in Maryland, maybe a few other places. But yeah, those are the states where that harvest occurs in the Atlantic. Pacific Brant, uh, as you talked about, certainly Alaska, Mexico, California is a uh, is another kind of big source of, of the Pacific Brant harvest there. So. Uh, I don't have anything here in front of me regarding harvest rates or, or survival rates for uh, for Atlantic brand. I don't know if you have any of that handy either. I don't. I, I don't think there's as uh, nearly as good information. I mean, that brand, the Pacific brand harvest rate and survival rate estimates was based on a huge data set recently published in 2017. Um some work I was involved with and and getting that type of data is pretty difficult. That was very extensive data that was quite uh, detailed. Mark, one thing of note here to kind of wrap up a, a survival discussion, survival harvest discussion, uh, something that we incorporated on the previous episode with Javon Bank, the, the, where we talked about greater white-fronted geese with uh, longevity record for Brant. It's 22 years and seven months for an Atlantic Brant and 27 years and six months for a Pacific Brant. So you get some of those those longer-lived species, uh, the uh, among the geese and yeah you can get something pretty easily in the 2025 i think jay said for greater white fronted geese the the longevity record is over 30 years i can't remember if it was 32 or 36 years but it's maybe it's 38 years but it's getting on up there it's pretty incredible some of these birds can live a long long time yeah it is and you know it's been a really um what's the word a, a really rewarding experience to get to know some of these individuals that have lived in a long time some ones we've marked um they come back to a similar area year after year and you get to interact with them um and get to know them and you think about it you know some of these birds so 10 years into their life may have migrated some sixty thousand miles you know double that if they've lived 20 years and you're you have the privilege of um, studying them. I mean, it it, it is a privilege, um, and it, you know you really feel obliged to um, be careful with what you're doing and try to be as respectful of of an individual that's um, putting itself out there as much as it is. So, yeah, absolutely. You said the word that was in my mind, and that is respect. 
the more we know about these birds, the more that we see what they have to deal with and the more we see the amazing feats that they can complete, whether we're talking about a 3,000-mile migration or a lifespan of 25 to 30 years, respect is what these birds deserve. And that it's also kind of behind a lot of the conservation efforts that, that we do within Ducks Unlimited and our other partner organizations and partner agencies. Um, you know, Brant kind of being where they are and uh, in terms of, breeding, staging, wintering, the type of habitats that they occupy. It's not as easy to do intensive management for them as we can for some dabbling duck species and some diving duck species, maybe to a lesser extent. But we nevertheless have to stay in tune with the the threats that their habitats are facing and how changing environmental conditions, changing climatic conditions are affecting uh, their ecology, their ability to survive and, and reproduce. And so that kind of takes us to the final section here where we want to talk about concerns, conservation concerns and priorities or research concerns. What can you tell us about that when you look across the landscape for Brant? Where are our greatest our, our greatest information needs, our greatest uncertainties or conservation concerns? I, I think all those um, meet, I suppose, in habitat, broadly speaking. Um, our changes in our ocean habitats is occurring at alarming rates and that has effects not just on the the ocean waters themselves and the plants they're in like the the eelgrass but then on the near shore waters or land uh, areas as well as salinity levels changes as flood tide frequency increases i think this is the new the next frontier for brand in general on the east coast um for atlantics development activities as well um, are something you have to consider in terms of how that's affecting near sh- near shore um, land areas and and associated habitats uh, less of a factor for brant that tend to straddle the, the major development in Cal- uh, california but um on the west coast in general but um but for atlantics i think development activities would be as well i'm just absolutely um astounded that we can make the changes in ocean environments that we've have and as we were talking while we were out in cold bay last week that entire uh, crab fishery has been shut down this year because the oceans have warmed too much and um, those crab have moved or perhaps died even worse and um, you know we're affecting ocean entire ocean environments um and that that's a little mind-boggling um, to think about. Not only that we as humans have had that effect, but m- more to me is what, how do we change that? And, you know, that storm that occurred, well, the, what the uh, the storm in Florida this year and the one on the the coast of the Yukon Delta were both um, the result. Ian in Florida, uh, the other one didn't have a name, but were their intensity, their severity was a part of increased ocean temperatures not just that they formed but how much rain they deposited as they moved across those land masses and um yeah that's pretty um frightening at one level but also i don't know inspiring or challenging maybe is the word that we need to try to do something about this um so i think for brand that's the big conservation challenge and mark you know i people when we have these conversations, sometimes people will, and we talk about how things are changing, people will say, well, what's 
What's going to happen? What's going to be the outcome of all of this? And of course, we don't have that answer because it depends on at least a couple of things, one of which is it depends on whether we're able to do anything to uh, kind of reduce the rate of environmental change that may be occurring or that is occurring in, in, some, in a lot of places. The other is the, uh, that it will depend on is the ability of the birds to adapt at, the, at a similar rate as at which the changes are occurring. I think, I think we're starting to see across the wildlife community that there are some species that are going to be capable of doing that for a number of reasons that partly we don't fully understand yet. There are other species that are perhaps more special specialized and that will be a bit more constrained, we think, in their ability to adapt at the same rate at which their environment is changing. So, we don't entirely know right now, and unfortunately, that puts us in a situation of having to not entirely wait and see, but learn as we go, and it emphasizes the importance of continuing to invest in science uh, and the research behind the scientific information that we that we rely on to, to keep an eye on what the populations are doing and how they're responding to changing environments, changing conditions intervene and control what we can control where we can and so that's it, it's you don't like to feel helpless but sometimes you um sometimes that's where you find yourself i think at least it does for me do you do, do you is that taking sort of a defeatist approach i don't um or what are your thoughts no, there i i mean i feel both of those uh, sides of the emotion, right? Sometimes I just want to throw in the towel because it seems so overwhelming. And most of the time, I just want to continue to try to tackle it and take it on as I think most in our profession do. I mean, I'm transitioning to a new phase of how I contribute, but uh, it's no less inspiring to try to do something to help help the situation. You know, the challenge, I think, in our profession, not to get into the weeds too much, but the details is that, you know, we're facing problems now that require us to collaborate at levels that we never had to before. You know, if you were just managing a single, I don't know, wetland complex even, or a refuge, you know, you didn't really need to work with anybody. Maybe just that refuge staff was capable of it now. But when you start thinking about managing ocean environments, um, you know, there's no one group that's going to put their arms around that. And, um, you know, now more than ever, you know, we need to stop building silos within our profession. And within our profession um, is not just people employed in the profession. It includes hunters and conservation-minded people. I mean, we need to work together um, collectively to address these problems that are bigger than any one group. And so, I think that's um, exciting to think about how we can do that. Um, And we're going to need to do it, I think, to address these problems. Mark, I think that's a great place to wrap up this episode. This has been a great conversation, a detailed conversation about one of the most intriguing species of waterfowl that we have in North America but because some of their uniquenesses, their long-distance migrations, their reliance on a... A, a narrow suite of, of foods and heavy reliance on on a few 
key staging areas and changes that we've seen in, in where those birds are wintering and staging and uh, maybe not necessarily staging, but wintering. They're incredibly unique for a number of reasons, and it's been a pleasure to talk with you about them here on these two episodes. It was absolutely a pre- pleasure and one of the highlights of my career to be in Cold Bay with you and our other uh, four other four comrades, I guess it would be, if I'm doing the... well. Six or seven, if we throw in everybody else that was part of that um, in, in Cold Bay to experience that area, one of the areas that is so important to this species. It's been a, a great two weeks for me. This episode kind of culminates that, and I hope our, our listeners enjoy the conversation as much as, as much as I have. Thanks for having me. It was really fun to talk about this uh, species and this topic. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Mark Lindbergh, retired wildlife professor from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. We greatly appreciate his time and expertise. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the wonderful job that he does with these episodes and getting them out to you. And then we thank you, the listener, for your time and for spending it with us and for your support and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.